0: He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The craziness of Christmas... Actually, the 330 was absolutely crazy. It was mind-boggling in many ways, for many different reasons. And uh, and I started by asking this question: How many people love having a white Christmas? A handful of us, right? In fact, uh, on a white Christmas as this, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to the memories of sledding competitions on Tut Hill and Sioux Falls. And for some of us, uh, for some of us, we have a little bit of anxiety this week on what this white Christmas meant. But I will say this, the city of Pier and Fort Pier and the construction companies that kept the city moving, to them, my heart goes out to them, I think we owe them a round of applause. <laughs> It's white Christmases like this, though, that do bring me personally a sense of peace, but there are other moments in our lives in which life seems a little less chaotic. I remember uh, this summer when I was home visiting some family, I remember at one point my mother and I were out running errands, and we were sitting at a red light with our our, our windows rolled down, and there was the sound that you never forget. There were boys riding up to the crosswalk with their bicycles with baseball cards clipped in the spokes. We call that those young men's first Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Anyone remember doing that as kids with their bikes, right? That sound, right? And there they were at the crosswalk uh, debating on who gets to press the crosswalk button to get across the street. My mother, she looked at me, she goes, Craig, do you ever miss those days? I looked at her with a smile on my face. I said, every day of my life, mother. (laughs) She smiled and she said, why is that? I said, because life was a lot less chaotic then. I was home by dinner at 5.30 and not a minute later. And again, after supper, we were home when the streetlights came on. Amen? And that was kind of the culmination of anything that would cause anxiety at that point in life. Now, I know that things change as we become adults and life becomes a little more complex, a little complicated, but... I would say, culturally, right now, we have become as chaotic, as crazy as it seems that we could possibly be. Right now, we live in a time in which the craziness of our lives, we like to project and point at all of these cosmic things that cause the craziness of the world we're living in, but the truth is, the craziness gets brought back to ourselves, because the craziness is caused by us. Amen? The craziness is caused by us, and it's all about being focused on the self. And it's all about being self, uh, self self-fulfilling and self-preserving. How do I know this? Because right now we are a culture of absolute mistrust. It's hard to trust anyone. I will not ask for a show of hands the rest of the sermon, but I imagine some of us have lost friends, lost family members, lost co-workers, all in the name of debating, in the name of opinions, in the name of belief. And with that mistrust, we have division. We are more polarized today than we've ever been before. Yes, I know there are times, there are generations in which our country and our culture has been strained and tested and pulled apart, but there has never been a time in our history, in decades, in which we've been as polarized as we are, amen? And with that mistrust, with that division, comes the finger pointing it's all your fault it's all your fault because of who you vote for it's all your fault because of the color of your skin it's all your fault because what you believe it's all your fault based on what you post on social media it's all your fault and of course we go back to that proverbial lesson as children when we point our fingers at others there's three fingers pointing back correct of course but that's only on the surface If we go deeper, we also have the wealthy people, even the wealthy are now starting to feel the tension because of the cost of everything. The middle class is disappearing and those who are poor are the poorest they've ever been in our place and time. And that's on the financial aspect of life. We also have debates on everything. But especially right now, we have debates on sexuality. If you want to know the number one tool that the devil crumbles the church all across the world, it's debates on sexuality. And as feather-ruffling as that might sound, it is truth. Debates in our culture about with who it is that we experience this with in our life, how many people we can have that experience with, and the access, the accessibility. It breaks my heart on this Christmas season to talk to my therapist friends in this community who have nine-year-olds addicted to the things that they're addicted to. All in the name of these experiences that we are trying to live out in life to preserve our And we call it craziness, amen? The truth is, none of this is crazy. Because all of this is us as human beings living within the law, living within the structures that God has given us, living within the structures that our parents and our grandparents raise us with, living within the structures and the vows that we make to each other at an altar, living within the structures that are given to us and made in all of the capacities of humanity, but it's us as human beings that try to push it, test it, strain it, fracture it, and then pretend that it's all, that we could just have a magic pill to make it all go away and we call that craziness this week I was listening to a podcast from one of my favorite uh, podcasters his name is Mike Winger he's definitely a little more evangelical than the Lutherans might be but he always has very poignant ways of looking at life he said this we as human beings right now in our culture in America we are like a dying man on the operators table And we are looking up at the surgeon, saying to ourselves and saying to the surgeon, trying to convince the surgeon that what we really need is plastic surgery. Because maybe, just maybe, if we can make ourselves feel good, look good, and just be perfect, everything is going to be all right. And the surgeon looks down and says, no, what you really need is a heart transplant. Amen? Amen. What we are doing, we are the ones in the operating operating table and we're looking for every possibility to just have all the cracks taken away and we're asking for the plastic surgery and the Lord our Savior says what you need is a heart transplant and that is when the craziness of Christmas actually begins let's look at what God does on this night let's think of what the Lord is going to do that great surgeon that says what we really need. Think about it. Over 2,000 years ago, God, who has absolute sovereignty and control over what's going to happen in this world, even before Christ, even before that Christ child comes into the world, hundreds of years before that, God is already using the prophets, Isaiah, which we already read tonight, Isaiah to say that there will be a Christ child, that Christ child will be born, that child will be the world's savior, he will be wrapped and swaddled in a manger in Bethlehem. And even longer before that, we had Abraham... And God promising to Abraham and making promises to Moses, making promises to King David, making promises through the prophets, making promises all the way to John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who will appoint Jesus, who will appoint exactly who that Messiah is. All of these things taking place, and here God is going to do this crazy thing. He's going to use the Roman emperor, Augustus, he's going to use his ego, his power and his might, to do this weird thing. We're going to have a census. We're going to calculate all the people in the Roman Empire. Why? Because the men will be conscripted as soldiers, the women and children will be conscripted as servants and slaves, and we're going to do this. And God, for some way, some crazy reason, does this to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill this covenant made hundreds of years before. That's where the craziness begins. And there is the Christ child laying in the manger like the spotless lamb, like we told the little children up here during the children's sermon. But then it goes further. Not only is the Christ child going to be in the manger, we have shepherds on the hillside. And those shepherds are going to experience something that no one has ever experienced before. These angels are going to come bursting out of the heavens, and there they are singing, I imagine, like the most glorious choir we could ever imagine, and giving them this good news and telling them where they're going to find this Savior. And when the angels disappear, I imagine the shepherds found themselves saying, well, I don't think science aligns with that. I don't think that that's how this goes. Amen? No, I don't think so, right? And I don't think they were saying, well, I'm wondering what King Herod thinks about this, and the politicians, I wonder, where, uh, I wonder what they think about this. You know, if they don't uh, buy onto this and sign off on it, I'm not sure we should buy into it. No, absolutely not. What do the shepherds do? Craziness. They run up to Bethlehem, and there in the manger is the Christ child. The promises being fulfilled. The angels, the shepherds, the promises, and the purpose. The craziness continues. As we've been preaching the last couple weeks, what Mary and Joseph are told is that their child, that Christ child born in a manger, is going to be born with one purpose and one purpose only. That purpose is to die. And that's when the craziness of Christmas just got dark really quick. Those of us that are mothers and fathers, when that new life comes into the world, I highly doubt the one thing you think about. I highly doubt the thing that was foretold to you is that that child's only purpose in life was to die for the entire world. But not only were they told that, as life would continue, they were also told that that child would also rise from the dead. God, what are you doing in the craziness of this life? And it all culminates into the ministry that Jesus does as he gets older. As that Christ child, born in a manger, becomes an adult and starts wandering around the countryside performing miraculous things, claiming that he is the Messiah, he's doing something very unique, something that we ourselves really struggle in the time we live in to accept. The number one thing Jesus is doing and teaching in all that he is doing is the forgiveness of sins. This week, I also got to listen to one of my favorite pastors, one of my favorite preachers. His name is Alistair Begg. He's an Irish preacher. I just love the Irish accent. Amen? And he gives this phenomenal sermon. He, he reminds us of this moment in Jesus' ministry. And I think it captures exactly the craziness of Christmas that we're trying to get at. He reminds us of this moment in which he is there in Capernaum. He's already cast out demons. He's already taken away the leprosy from those who, uh, who have leprosy. He, he's already giving sight back to the blind. And here he is in this home. He's teaching, he's preaching, and absolutely dozens upon dozens of people are gathered outside this home, and down the road is this young man who is paralyzed, and his friends have faith to get him on his mat and to bring him to see Jesus, but they cannot get through the crowd, so what do they do? They go around back, they go up on the roof, they're literally tearing the thatching of this roof apart, and what do they do? They drop their friend right down in Jesus' lap. That doesn't happen at St. Mary's very often, amen? They drop him down in his lap, and they just know something's going to happen. And what does Jesus do? Step one, he looks at the young man and he says, your sins are forgiven. As Pastor Alistair Begg says, this is what we call the anticlimactic part of the story. Do you know why that's anticlimactic? Because at the beginning of every worship service, Pastor Craig looks in front of you and says, your sins are are forgiven and you look back at me just as dumbfounded every single week as I imagine that young man did to Jesus but someone else in that moment was not dumbfounded the Pharisees were standing off to the side and they started looking at each other and they said who is this man that thinks he has the authority to forgive sins only God has the authority to forgive anyone's sins And they are so blinded by the craziness in their world, they are so blinded by the laws and everything that they are trying to do, they are so blinded by their desire of plastic surgery, of being the perfect ones in society, that they don't even realize God in the flesh is standing right there. And what happens next is the best part. Jesus gets into the debate with them because he knows that that's on their hearts and minds and he looks at the Pharisees and he says, or he asks, what is easier? Is it easier for me to tell you your sins are forgiven or is it easier for me to tell you to pick up your mat and walk away? And they know the stupid rhetorical answer, the stupid, the, the best and most obvious answer is, well, telling someone their sins are forgiven is probably the easiest. Why? Because you have no way to measure it. Amen? It's only between you and God and the belief, that you're forgiven. And then he says, let me show you something better. He looks at the young man, he says, by the way, pick up your mat and go and walk down the road. And he does. That is the craziness of Christmas. The Christ child does not come into this world simply to heal. The Christ child does not come into this world simply so that we can feel better. The Christ child does not come into this world simply so that you can understand how to love someone. Amen? As we leave this space tonight, and as we gather tomorrow morning, as we're gathered around the presents, the trees and the decorations, as we're gathered around friends and family, as we're gathered around the smell of hopefully good food, as opposed to National Lampoon's Turkey. (laughs) As we're gathered in those moments, we give thanks that we can even do that. That is not the Christ child. The Christ child is here to say, you need forgiveness. And I'm here to give it to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we leave this space tonight, I hope hope that you find some space in which you can get on bended knee as though you are at the manger. Just like the shepherds did. Just like the wise men. And we say, Lord, have mercy. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for your genuine craziness to save me, a sinner who needs love and grace. Merry Christmas. Thanks be to God. Amen.